Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. We are your guests, Hyron. And Zap. And we're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Blitz. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, I just outed myself. We've, do, we've, we've done this like, what, five times now? <laughs> Maybe five times. <laughs> One more time than Joe Grand, and we're already screwing it up. Yep. And we're your hosts, Crab Foam. And Blitz. This is episode 238. So, Zap Pyron, how's it been? It's been a year, I think. It's been a year and a half in COVID time. <laughs> Actually, the last time we did a podcast with you guys was at DEF CON last year, right? Yeah. No, the I vaguely remember that one. That was fun. <laughs> that was that was a lot of fun. That was an unofficial MacFab engineering podcast. Oh, good point. You're right. It was after hours. Because we never put we how we get I think we dropped it on a Dropbox link and just was like, yeah, listen to this for some like lulls. Antics. I think Hyron, you were on uh you're on one last Christmas time, correct? That's right. I don't know. The 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 Star Wars Christmas special doesn't Episode count. three. It doesn't count as a real podcast, does it like it doesn't count as a real Star Wars entry. <laughs> which which is kind of funny because Parker and I sort of treat it as like the one episode a year that doesn't count. <laughs> oh, going on a short tangent, did you see that Disney Plus is doing a Lego Star Wars Christmas special? Yes. Wait, really? Recreating the Star Wars special in Lego. Wait, yeah. the recruit is going to be the same script where like half of it is Wookiee they, noises? They just released <laughs> pictures and said Lego Star Wars Christmas special is coming. Shut up and take my money. Disney yeah. Plus. <laughs> Subscribe now. Take my $7. And I'm like, I'm okay with it. Just fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope it is actually the same because there's that whole section where I think it's Chewbacca's son for like five minutes has to like assemble an electronics project. And it's not like done for TV as in like they show him like doing parts of it. No, like they intricately show him like building electronics. And I really hope that there's a Lego guy building Legos in the Lego Star Wars special. That would be phenomenal. Now, would the Legos be the same size as him or like the same scaled down version of Legos? That's uh, that's that's a couple levels too meta for me. I'm into it, though. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I diverted on to the Christmas special, and we know what, what that does to everyone. They're like, mm, Star Wars, I'm not going to hear this. <laughs> I promise this episode is not about Star Wars. <laughs> what is this episode about? Did you see that segue there? That was great. It's about ones and zeros. Ooh. Enlighten me. It's about the thing people really care about in Badgers. Yeah, so if you if you haven't heard, we're the uh, two two of the six from the Anodic Sor team. We make blinky badges for DefCon, and uh, we just finished our fifth year, surprisingly, uh, of making badges for DefCon. Starting at DefCon 24, of course, this year DefCon was in safe mode uh, due to COVID, uh, but we went ahead and proceeded and released our badge. Uh, sent out hundreds and hundreds of packages to the postal service, and they all got there. Um, they all got there. Maybe not on time. They all got there. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been nice to wrap up wrap up a project and then move on to the next one. Yeah, and and I would say what we're doing, kind of finishing up the first phase right now that we we kind of dovetail with the end of every project is start work on the next one, uh, and that begins with 
prototyping and initial firmware development. We'll interchangeably say software and firmware, but you know we mean firmware. And it's so important to talk about this stuff because most people don't don't like to deal with software development, firmware development, and all the fun intricacies that come with it. It's like, what can I copy paste off GitHub and get it to work? Um, Stack Exchange, but yeah. Oh, Stack Exchange. <laughs> it, is, it is the Bible of the technical internet. Have you seen any of the studies that look at software vulnerabilities introduced by Stack Exchange? Where oh, people yeah, have yeah. used the same sorting algorithm over and over and they have the same vulnerabilities? <laughs> Not that I've ever copied and pasted from there. <laughs> so before we dive in, though, Hyron, you mentioned the difference between software and firmware. What is y'all's take on that? Okay, wait, hang on. That's really funny because I was literally about to ask the same thing. <laughs> I'm... Okay, I'm going to get a not a textbook definition, but I would go the route of saying firmware is something you compile to run on your MCU or system on chip, whereas software is something that rides on top of a higher level language, typically on a computer. You typically think of software running on top of like Windows or Linux or, you know, OS X, but firmware is more designed to be down at the hardware level running on the chip. So an OS would be more firmware then? Maybe the BIOS? BIOS that runs on the, yeah. Uh, BIOS are getting uh, quite a bit more complex nowadays. They're almost their own OS in, at this point now. They they have their own USB stacks and network stacks and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, they're we, they're ju- we just keep OS. blurring the lines and and adding more lines. Soon they'll run JavaScript and the the circles complete. <laughs> Ooh, back in my day we called it CMOS and it was good, and we didn't complain. <laughs> Wait until you can actually like browse the internet on your bios no if you have doom embedded in your bios that's when it's all over that has to exist already <laughs> <laughs> i bet you it does american megatrends doom <laughs> and, and you know if, if people don't work on like it infrastructure a lot that is something that's like been baked in for a while that's scary um like you can boot into your UFEI or CMOS and it has a full network stack in there. So if you want to run an installation, you can just point it to an IP address and say, go pull these files, run an installation, boot, net boot, basically. Yeah, connect your hardware straight to the internet. It's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's what an ESP32 is. Mm-hmm. Careful, last time I set up I I set off the ESP community because I don't like their SDK. (laughs) Did anything you said that on the podcast? Did anything actually fall out from that? I don't think so. Yeah, I got some hate mail on Twitter. It's okay. And then that's what Twitter's for, though. I know. And the best part was they confirmed everything I said. They're like, well, that's not true because if you go to this post on this message board and scroll 30 pages down, I'm like, yeah, I was complaining that you guys don't have a proper document documented manual or scripts or anything like I shouldn't have to look on a message board to learn how a chip works. No, that's that's how the documentation works. It is a search field on a message board. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've heard so many times that the ESP does have documentation somewhere, but it's like this weird ancient document that you have to search for and you'll never actually find it, but it supposedly exists. There's, there's actually someone in the community. I can't remember his name. He releases a monthly book on 
the Espresso SDK and chips. And it's amazing that someone out there does it. It's not amazing that a person in the community does it and not the company who produces the chips. I, I really hope this person gets paid. In ESP chips. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but firmware. 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 Zaf, what do you like about firmware? Oh, yeah. What's, what's your firmware versus software or moving on? <laughs> Yes, so my my I did not Google this answer, which I didn't. Um, firmware is anything that runs on an embedded device. Software run on a general purpose uh, OS. Um, and there's probably, you know, that's probably slightly wrong. Maybe there's a, a better definition, but that's the way I see it. Um, but I, th- I think now you're seeing with the uh, RTOSs that are out there, there is very much a blurring where you're able to write code that's a lot more portable and you can retarget it between different architectures really easily. Same thing with, like, like uh, MicroPython. It's like Ooh, yeah. you drag a Python script over, you, you plug your device in, and it makes a, you know, a, uh, a thumb drive, basically, on, or a HID on your, on your computer, and you just drop a file on it, and then you unplug it, and it runs a Python script. Actually, that'd be a, a very good delineation, in my opinion, would be the, the Python itself would be the software. Mm-hmm. Interpreted. <laughs> Interpreted, yep. That would be fair, right? What I didn't touch on was, I, I think even when we both started like working on embedded systems, um, you know, we've called back and been like, hey, I got started on Arduino. It was great. It was turnkey. You start going. Um, you write some pseudo C code. It compiles. But you go from using something like Arduino where you're just compiling C code into firmware and then I think the first year we used that Regato system on chip, we were actually using Nordic's SDK. So we have a software development kit, but you're still writing in a framework, very complex firmware that gets compiled on. Um, but then we kind of moved on to doing a real-time operating system because why do all of the crappy stuff over and over when you have a badass RTOS to, to, to abstract that and do it for you? Great segue. Uh, and so, <laughs> so actually going back to ESP32, so the year after the, the Nordic um, sort of native SDK that we used, the year after that we followed up with the ESP32, and that's actually based on free RTOS. And so for me, that was my, that was my first time getting in, into an RTOS environment. Learned a lot about the way you manage memory uh, with you know, static allocation, those sorts of things. A lot of painful lessons as to how Espressif architected their RTOS. Um, one of the, so so the year after that, so not this last year we just completed, but the year before, DEFCON 27, we switched to Zephyr uh, OS, which is uh, an open source RTOS, uh, basically targeting the Internet of Things. Uh, and it was for a while, I forget the name of the company that started it, but they were acquired by Intel. Intel sort of managed it, and now it's kind of been spun off. But I think it was Wind River. Was it Wind River? I think it was Wind River, yeah. And they, I know they have their own commercial RTOS, and this yeah. is kind of the open source variant. But they come out with new releases about every, I guess, 10 to 12 weeks-ish. Um, we adopted that one. Uh, two years ago because they had a, a very nice Bluetooth stack. And when I mentioned earlier about being able to retarget hardware, you actually go in there and say, hey, I want you to compile this code for 
such and such and such um, at a fruit board uh, because they've already got the board definitions in there. And they'll reroute the GPIOs and, and all sorts of stuff as long as you... All the registers and that kind of stuff. All the registers, yeah. They'll they'll even pull in the SDK for that particular board and they'll, they'll do some of that abstraction in a similar way the Arduino does it, but I... I'd actually argue that it would, it's a lot more efficient because rather than having layers and layers and layers and then where you eventually get down there <laughs> bit banging a spy bus, they're not doing that. They're just they're doing one, one maybe two layers of abstraction just enough to kind of, uh, and usually through C macros, so it's not adding a lot, uh, to then jump in and, and call the SDK in the right way. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons I liked it because I could go in and just change board definitions and then, uh, retarget. It also meant that samples that somebody had written for a particular Intel device, right, with x86, uh, those samples were good enough to actually run on our NRF52. Uh, that's not all perfect, right? There's always <laughs> issues going between them. Uh, your hardware is not always going to be the same, so you do have to deal with some of those things, but it was um, a good experience. The other thing, uh, Zephyr is uh, it's tied up with MCU boot. Uh, which is comes out of the minute RTOS project. That's the the bootloader that they use to kind of do a lot of the, support a lot of the DFU sort of stuff. Um, nice thing about that is MCU boot also compiles itself as a Zephyr project. So you could tell MCU boot, hey, compile yourself against this board, and it will remap all the GPIOs and everything, and work. And then it has it follows a lot of the same K config and um, all the same framework around it. Uh, now that being said, uh, there's a lot of abstraction going on. So you could actually go in and say, "Hey, I want a USB stack that does, um, like, uh, a USB stack that does mass storage, right? So a USB MSC profile. You can actually have that working without writing a, a single line of C code. It's a matter of going into the device tree files, which is a, a Linux um, construct, and Zephyr supports it." setting up all the right parameters, a lot of trial and error, going into the k-config, which is also kind of a, a Linux kernel <laughs> thing. No C code, trial. though. No C code. No C code. <laughs> uh, and then it will handle all the spy bus and everything behind the scenes, all the registers, setting partitions, stuff like that. Uh, and that's that's great. Um, we, we So we used that on NRF52840 two years ago, and then this year we used it on the STM32F412. Um, and I was able to copy... For, for parts of our badge that were similar, I was able to copy code over with and with very little modification make it work. And most of the modification was because Zephyr was in the process of deprecating old API. So I had to follow along with what Zephyr was doing. Uh, so that was that was really good. For next year's project, plan is also to use Zephyr, so I'm getting bootloader and everything like that running again. Uh, because DFU will be an important part of next year's badge. Uh, very important part, in fact. Yeah, no, it, I, I definitely think that was a cool part of their abstraction layer and how easy it was to work with it because I, I don't think we've gone one year where the, we're using the same chip or family of chipsets from the prior year where we're hopping around from, you know, STM to Nordic to Espressive to STM and having something where it's like, hey, I just need to tweak the K-Config and, and some of the chips select on the background which I know certain systems, um, you know, like Atmel have that, though it's really clunky and you do it in the web interface and stuff and it's never really worked well. But I love the fact that, you know, 
you can use VS Code or anything else and just tweak your configuration files for a different target MCU and everything transfers over where you know you're capable of doing it, but you don't want to spend time reinventing the wheel over and over and over. And it, it helps your code be a little more portable in that respect. Yeah, now one thing I'll have to say, though, with the abstraction, uh, if you're used to writing code where you're having to write the assembly to, to bring up the microcontroller and then write a lot of your own abstraction to whatever the SDK gave you as far as the HAL, uh, you're not going to really get to have that experience, but at the same time, you're a lot, you have a lot more productivity, I would argue, just because the they've done a lot of the, the heavy lifting there. Uh, it's not always the most efficient, and it's really dependent on the, on the chipset and the SDK. One thing I learned with the STM32 was they did not support DMA very well on the spy bus. Actually, they didn't support it at all. And so I was digging very deep into their their, their kernel to figure out, okay, what registers are you or are you not turning on and on or off to get to get this to work? And at the end of the day, I just couldn't make DMA uh, work the way I wanted to. NRF52, spy, DMA, all works because it's it's a much easier SDK to, to, to get it to work on than the STM is. Uh, and so that's kind of the trade-offs. Uh, so if you look at our badge from this year, uh, it has two screens. The left screen is a 128 by 64 OLED. Uh, so that hides a lot of the, the slowness of our spy bus on that. The right screen is a color TFT. I think it's the same one Parker used on the Doom SAO. Actually, yep, I think the exact board. same one. Yeah, it's uh, the exact same screen. Yeah, because I couldn't drive that with DMA, uh, I, I basically was stuck with something around a 20 megahertz spy bus and having to, to wait to write to that while I was also reading from the spy flash. Uh, couldn't get it as efficient. And so that's ultimately why you don't see animations on that right screen. They're just too slow. It was never really fast on Doom either, though. <laughs> but that was limited from the uh, the chip we were using. So that was a... Was a Sampy? Yeah. yeah. But it was like mm -hmm. the tiny one. Just out of curiosity, uh, why'd you end up going with the 412, the STM412? Um, so... A lot of it's actually driven by Zephyr. So if you if you look at their supported boards, and there's 100 or so, the easiest way f that I like to get started is to look for a development board that they already support out of the box. Pick one of those, and then when you roll your custom hardware, basically start with that schematic and then tweak it where you need to. That way you can just take their board definitions, all the config files, all that sort of stuff that they've already got set up for you. You copy that over for a custom they call it an out-of-tree board, and um, then just tweak it where you need to. If you've changed the GPIO, you've added a peripheral, you've removed something, you, you can do those tweaks. The 412, uh, well, we picked a slightly different one, different 412 than the one they support. Uh, it it was the easiest to, to bring up without starting from scratch. Uh, and, and I think the, t the time we started, which was about this time last year, uh, they the STM32 support was a little bit weak and, and spotty in certain areas. So if you look at our code once we eventually release it, it's actually copied from the 411 and not the 412. It was it was easier to get it get some of the peripherals of work from the 411. But those those chips are also similar. Uh, it doesn't matter. Is there any particular reason, Blitz, for that question? Well, it's just the the 400 series of STM chips have. Uh, a, a decent bit of grunt behind them, 
and and they have some. What do you mean uh, by grunt? <laughs> well, I mean they, they they have some some pretty decent uh, processing power, and they have some DSP stuff going on under the hood, uh, and and they're pretty quick, and they, they can be a little bit power hungry. So I was wondering for a badge, if there was like extra reasons why you went with a four hundred series. Uh, yeah. So that's a. I went for. I think probably uh, additional memory space as well. Yeah. Usually, we we always run out of memory. We tax the chips to death. <laughs> Yeah, I think on the 412 RET6, we had 256K of RAM and 512 or 1 meg of flash. Uh, but yeah, Hiren's right. It's it's the RAM that matters on our projects more than anything. Uh, so that, that was kind of the starting point of what put us in that family. The other reason uh, was we're very concerned at last August, before COVID was a thing, we were concerned about repairability and being able to physically inspect the pins. Uh, we've had QFN issues before. We've had the uh, Nordic chips where they you know, have all those balls and stuff underneath or whatever. Yeah, Nordic chips are LGA packages. Yeah, and we've, that's been a real pain to repair. When you're in a hotel room, possibly hungover from the night before, QFP is a lot easier to fix. <laughs> Just requires a glob of flux and you're half awake. <laughs> Ooh. So, random tangent on Zephyr. Like, yeah, we're saying, oh, I love this RTOS. I love this. I love that. One thing that is weird about it, which I think in the recent release, they started changing their, their setup documentation because I'll give it to them. Their, their website, getting started, everything's clean. But the thing that drove me nuts last year was um, they recommend how to run your project and where you check out certain parts of the SDK and the different tools. And they use something, um, they call it their meta tool. It's called West. And West manages a lot of configurations and plugins for Zephyr. It doesn't say this explicitly, but I kind of figured out that West is based on Git. So you have something managing configuration inside of something that you have in a Git repository. So if you're using like a Git management tool, you start seeing these dead repos inside of it where it's like, I don't know what this is because it has the same header file as like a Git repository. Um, but we just moved it outside of the project and it doesn't do it anymore. And I, I started noticing their documentation says, yeah, don't, don't keep this inside your repo. Just kind of keep certain parts of it out. But it was freaking out Git left and right before. <laughs> it's weird things like that that come up. I say you're running your autos, uh, not no. <laughs> autos, autos, no, uh, rotos, right? A uh, rotos, rotos, yep. <laughs> um, Aaron, I, I get in blitz laughing on that one. Um, so you, you got Zephyr running. Um, what lies on top of that OS? Uh, so it, let me think. So it's everything from the SDK for the hardware all the way up to the GUI layer. So they'll do layers of device drivers to um, some IoT stuff, and then there's some, you know, obviously threading and mutexes and semaphores and all the fun. Um, Actually, can we back? Yeah. Like, how does threading work on on Zephyr, or how does that work on an embed system? Because when uh, Blitz and Crabfoam, you know, me. We were writing our own kind of like management in terms of interrupts, which is a how to do thread a threading, right? Is you stop and do something else and then go back to what you're doing, which is what threading is, except 
you're allowing something else manage that, correct? Yeah. Um, so it's it's the same way your old 386 worked as a kid, right? You had a single core, and it's just switching between thread contexts. Um, Pause one thread, hop over the other, jump back. Yeah, yeah. Interrupt one, jump to the other. Uh, on the STM32, it's a single core, so you know you're. It's it's gonna depend on priorities or whatever uh, scheme you've given it. Is it round robin or uh, there's some tree models, red, blue, black, whatever. There's there's some different methodologies for how you switch between threads. Um, it'll let them run for a certain amount of time before switching to the next one. And I'm I'm totally getting this wrong. Somebody's gonna tell me I, I don't understand threading, which I don't completely. Um, all I know is when we did it in undergrad. And we had to submit all, we did it all at the same time on this Linux cluster. Uh, you could tell when the operating system class was submitting their final project because the Linux cluster would go down every time. It would just be hung by all these wild processes <laughs> and whatnot. Because you had to write your own threading. So uh, it's been a while since I've you know, studied it academically. But uh, uh, usually in RTOS will make it really easy where you, you statically define, hey, run this function. Uh, with this amount of statically defined stack space, and you know, give it this this data, and then basically that function gets called when the OS is ready, you know, ready for it to run. You either throw it in a while loop, which would keep the thread going all the time. Uh, you maybe, if you're nice, actually not if you're nice, you should be nice. You you may sleep. Part of that sleep won't just allow it allow the microcontroller to to go into a deep sleep mode. That also signals to the OS, hey, it's it's time to go look at other threads that you need to go do some work on, and that's where it may check to see, hey, another one's ready to go wake up. So, what you lose on that is you lose the deterministic nature uh, of the embedded system. So you, you mentioned interrupts, right? With the interrupt, I can say, hey, run this code every time, you know, 20 times a second. And I know it's going to run 20 times a second, so that's really good for signal mm -hmm. processing and whatnot. Uh, not so, but these sort of OS threads are less deterministic uh, because sometimes it may run a thread, sometimes it won't, and it doesn't always line up perfectly the way you want it to. Uh, for for a user sort of application, it doesn't matter as much because you want one thread that's managing the, the UI, and another one's kind of doing the whatever processing behind the scenes, and then they're passing data safely between them. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> no, it made sense to me. I'd like how you mentioned uh, round robin, which is how uh, Parallax Propeller handles threading. Right. Yep. I'm I'm just waiting. For, I'm waiting for yeah the second one. Is Prop Two out yet? <laughs> I haven't asked this question it's in time like time for our weekly check. Do we have I, the Prop Two dev board? I haven't actually <laughs> asked this question on the podcast in actually back when we had Parallax on. We had Parallax on, and they were like, it's coming, I promise. I love that show. I was excited. Even though I don't quite like spin, I was still excited because <gasps> it's a – I, yeah, it's, I spoke evil words. Uh -oh, is it you out? can buy an evaluation board. How much? $150. Jesus. <laughs> and they have – actually, you get microcontrollers. You get a, engineering samples right now. You can actually go buy them. I am going through that after the podcast. I'm excited. <laughs> I know what next next week's topic is. My house burnt down because the parallax propeller burnt. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> Parker tried to write some spin code. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't written spin code in ages. 
So, so the 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 uh, back to threading real quick. What when it comes to operating systems on a microcontroller, that just feels so uh, to me. Like it feels so sort of like kind of gross in a way because like the whole point of me coding a, a micro is that I have control over every little aspect and throwing an, a, a, an operating system on there is like saying, uh, well, you control everything and I just kind of tell you do some things here and there and you handle everything else. And that just feels like I'm just losing True. all the control that I'm, that I'm happy no, with. No, <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And that's, that's like the weird control you're giving up. It feels dirty almost. <laughs> I, I would say, yeah. at least for our badge project, kind of what we're doing, and I understand why Zephyr exists for this purpose, it's for IoT. And from a digital design, embedded design purpose, if you really had to scrap your RTOS and just down and dirty, you know, try to control a Bluetooth and a Wi-Fi radio and screens and user input and clock and... I, I think the control you gain would be lost in productivity trying to implement that on your own just because it's sure. so difficult to to coordinate all of those kinds of things. Um, like, you know, earlier we're talking about threads and them handling, handling things properly. And um, I don't even think you get semaphores until C++ to try to, like, deal with race conditions. And... Um, yeah, with microcontrollers, you're more or less dealing with, uh, these things are, I'm just going to insert a couple of sleep twenties right here until, <laughs> until it works. Steven's uh, got a story about that one on a reason project. Yeah, I, I fixed a spy problem just the other day by just slapping some, some knobs in there and it, and it ended up working. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing like making your DMA spy bus, uh, blocking. <laughs> You know, so so I actually dug into that issue uh, quite a, a, a bit more and found out that there was actually a flag that I wasn't checking properly, and uh, was, and I just put enough knops until it overflowed, and then it just worked anyway. <laughs> so like that was the solution, but like I was just I pointed to the wrong oh, flag on on her badge. Um, Oops. Thankfully, because we never will again use SD cards, uh, but we have Spy Flash. We have really slow Spy Flash. Well, we're cheap. Oh yeah, I mean it's, it's Nor Flash, right? It, it, if it, we got it with Nand Flash, it would have been a lot faster on the right side, but yeah, we didn't but need we're rights. But we're running like a FAT32 file system on there, and um, basically, like b- between plugging the badge into the computer and like when you were actually using it and saving our our CTF game state, we were getting tons of Spy Flash corruption on there. And, you know, I was just, we were both debugging it back and forth. And then eventually it got to the point, I'm like, I think our different threads are trying to write to the spy flash, the <laughs> spy flash at the same time. And I'm like, sleep 20. Oh shit, it went away. I'm like, okay, let's write a script that writes 10,000 <laughs> times and it didn't destroy the flash. I'm like, it works. Don't touch it. The sleep, <laughs> this one line of sleep 20 works. And I did 10,000 writes. I feel somewhat good about this for the time being. <laughs> that versus the time it's going to take to truly debug and dig into the guts and the kernel and figure out what the hell is going on. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to delay this thread by 20 mils and we're good. So as far as, you know, when it's appropriate, uh, blitz, 
Uh, it really depends on the use case, right? If you really have a real-time use case, I think it's best to not use an RTOS because you do right. need that level of control. Uh, with with our badges, it does make it makes a lot of sense for us because we have the user doing input. We're blinking LEDs. We're throwing stuff on screens. Uh, on most of our badges, there's some sort of Bluetooth stack that's being run in the background. And sometimes there's even a USB stack going at the same time. We have to have certain certain guarantees with both of those. Um, so, yeah, letting letting the OS manage those guarantees and then for the, the user side, the LEDs and whatnot, we don't need a you know, quite deterministic behavior on that side. Uh, and oh, by the way, that, that particular model we did, that was the DEF CON 27 badge. We had Bluetooth, USB, UI, LEDs all at the same time on a single core. Uh, so pretty impressive on a on a microcontroller to do all that. I know that this doesn't necessarily translate one to one, but how fast did you have it running? Um, that year, I think was a uh, sixty-four megahertz. Um, yeah, you yeah, it was sixty-four ninety-six. This year, we're at ninety-six, uh, which is way more than we ended up needing. Um, but again. No one's at DEF CON, so battery life wasn't quite as important. It just needed to be able to sit at home when, you know, plugged into USB. We had a great power supply set up. Uh, Crabfoam helped us quite a bit with that. Uh, do it. We had a power mux and some, some TI chips in there, and no issues with the power this year. Usually we have a few failures. Just It just worked beautifully to be able to switch between uh, USB and, and battery power seamlessly. But... Again, no one's at DEF CON to, to be able to appreciate it. But next year. But next year, yeah. Yes. Well. I'm talking about with the, with the current badge. Yes, people will use it next year. Yeah, uh, it's blinged out for sure. Mm-hmm. Don't give away too much about next year, Zap. <laughs> All right, dead air. Dead air. Let's talk about GUI. It's a good movie. Gooey's. Here's, is that a movie? Here's, oh, Gooey's a great movie. No, actually, I think it's not a movie. I think that is a Left 4 Dead 2 map video game. Is that the one with the the 747? The, yeah, where the airplane crashes. Yep. And you kill zombies. Yep. Zombie mode. I need more beer. Ooh, go get more beer. <laughs> You know we don't edit any of this out. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so it goes back. If, there's no one here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if people haven't figured out, we're we're kind of building our way up the. Ooh, I don't want to say the OSI stack. Just basically the different layers going from like the hardware to the MCU to the RTOS or for, from the the bootloader to the RTOS. It's like Dante's layers of hell, except yeah, it's, it's firmware. It's, it's beautiful. It's the layers of firmware. No, something that I think um, this really, really helped out because I think one thing that we loathe is GUI design. Um, and they package LVGL into Zephyr. It is the uh, light and versatile embedded graphics library. And what I thought was really cool about this. I, well, I do like when people call their libraries like that. Because then when you ever make something that's better, you have to be like extra light. Oh, yeah. The ELVGL. Yeah. Oh, it'll be the evil, evil GL. Oh, they need to change that. Yeah, they do. They need that. They need to refactor everything to be better. But something I thought was cool about that is it. mm, If you've ever programmed in Java, 
it, it works a lot like Java in the sense that it's really working with events and listeners similar to, you know, how you deal with interrupts. Um, but what I really like about it is that there's already object stations. You can say, Hey, I need a GUI object and I need a text area and a scroll bar and an okay button. And, Oh, do you have a touch screen? Yeah. Accept input from touch. And you can lay out your screen layout on the embedded device to be relative. Like instead of saying, Hey, it's going to be 10 pixels long. You can just say, start in the top left, go to the center or go to the bottom right because and draw something this big. Yeah. Cause let's say you are going to port your, firmware to a new hardware platform and you got a new MCU and you got a different screen. If you take the time to do your graphics um, section correctly and set it up relatively, you can use a different screen that has a completely different resolution and it's going to scale it appropriately, just like you do with like Android apps and and whatnot. So yeah, we're working on a 4k screen now. Oh, is is your badge going to have a 4k screen? Oh yeah. You're you're doomed to SAO. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you wearing a 36 inch monitor on your chest yeah. ultra <laughs> wide and curved 100k of ram to run it oh yeah <laughs> blast processing is gonna be great on that but yeah no it's it's cool that they have these like higher level um type of things that you can do in there where you're like okay i don't want to deal with you know drawing graphics out and you have a whole graphics library built in or um for like a lot of the ctf we do it's it's command line like text-based adventure and we have like embedded maintenance terminals and and serial consoles and being able to have like a full command line capable parsable um you know interface built in to where you're like, cool, I'm going to spend more time working on the logic behind my commands and interacting with the hardware peripherals than making sure it draws the letter a correctly. Yeah. Or like, Oh, I wrote my own serial interface wrong. Like we don't need to do that. (laughs) Well, uh, one of the cool things we did was with LVGL, uh, I found this website that has all the old DOS fonts that were embedded in yeah. the IBM BIOS. So going back to the BIOS, uh, took that font, ran it through a couple conversion tools, and got it into a format that LVGL recognized. Uh, it was great. It's, the font's even smaller than their smallest font. So I was able to squeeze a lot more on that screen, and it's got kind of this old-school, nostalgic feel to it. Uh, and normally when I'm doing font rendering, I'm doing it myself. And it's always where, hey, that, that last line of pixels is off by one. And then it doesn't quite print right. I'm having to handle word wrapping and, and spending weeks or months, you know, relearning uh, UI layout. Oh, don't remind me about word wrapping. Oh, it, that's, a, that's a really hard problem. It's NP hard yes, <laughs> to, to do it right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, they, they support it. It's not the best, but it's better than what I want to write in a weekend. I'd rather spend my weekend drinking beer and write another code. So Yep. No, it's, uh, I've been writing a lot of PDF stuff for, for the fab. And yeah, making sure that if you have an infinite text block, how do you make sure that fits on a page on a PDF? Yeah. Yeah. You might think that might fun. be easy. It is not. <laughs> no. At what point does your algorithm go with a negative font size? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you start running those edge cases. 
you know, when he's when he's bringing up the graphics library and drawing those fonts and stuff, what what we originally intended, which I think some people are still doing, is you see that there's a BlackBerry keyboard on there. Um, and, and since a lot of our CTF is like command line based, you don't actually need to have um, anything like Putty or Minicom or or PyTerm to log into it. You can actually interface with the serial directly on the badge. And if it weren't for the RTOS, it wouldn't have been as easy. We essentially man in the middle of the serial bus by splitting the input stream using the RTOS and saying, okay. Using like a standard output or something like that? Yeah. Uh, I, we basically overloaded printf with print B for print vendor. And it's like, okay, when you print, dump it out the serial interface and dump it out the spy interface to the screen. When you take input, take input from both areas. And it's it's kind of cool because if you actually have the badge hooked up to the computer and and you're like going through playing the CTF, whatever you see in your serial terminal is mirroring on the screen. Um, and if you weren't doing that with an RTOS, you would have a lot of things to discombobulate on that. So we were able to gain some efficiencies in doing that. Like, hey, I know what I need to do. I still get a lot of power on my STM32. So kind of a good compromise there. But it ended up working out. How many people are like, we need to split our serial interface and display it on a screen and at the computer at the same time? I'm like, nah, boundary conditioned. <laughs> Useless invention. A lot of single board computers do that, though, with the uh, with their boot up sequence. They will spit it out on a serial TXT line and you can see that on a screen. No, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Now, did they yeah, do it that way? I don't know. <laughs> that's what we're going for but to, to get it to fit on a small screen you have to play some games as well right make sure that the map that Hiren's outputting is only so many characters he did a lot of uh creative word games in the in in the bender game so that it would fit uh it is oh. it's not as it's not as straightforward as just hey print the same thing out on both because then the the user experience is you know scrolling hundreds of lines of text then having interacted with it on BlackBerry keyboard was, was not that great. Oh, and, and there was a way for me to cheat to fit more on the screen. Um, one, it makes it funny because it's a hacker CTF. But uh, I found a website called Translate It. And you type in a message and it translates it to millennial SMS speak. <laughs> and I was like, well, why is this useful? Oh, I just condensed 120 characters down to 45 because it's using like text emoticon, weird things. And I'm like, cool, now I can fit more on the screen without dealing with such BS. And then I get a bunch of people texting me like, what the hell does this mean? I'm like, I don't know, figure it out. <laughs> That's part of the puzzle. <laughs> it's part of the fun. And they're like, what does this mean? Am I at it? <laughs> Oh, All right, so, so let's, let's talk about more of that CTF then. So actually, some people might be lost. What is hacker CTF or CTF? So, okay, to be fair, there is official capture the flag is what CTF stands for. And it's really common at, at hacker cons or, or different security events that you have capture the flag events. Now, officially, a capture the flag event is where a bunch of people are given 
software they've never seen before on an operating system they've never seen before. And they have to reverse engineer it, find vulnerabilities, patch those vulnerabilities to get points, and then exploit them against the other teams. Um, We start using CTFs really loosely where it's more of just a hacker competition where you're not like attacking the other teams. I was guess I'm giving you more of the formal DEF CON, you know, proper CTF, but you'll go to conferences where it's like, Hey, 30 people are playing. There's a server in general. You're trying to find the vulnerabilities. And when you, when you get to the core of it, you find a flag. And when you find the flag, you go to the scoreboard and you enter that flag and you get points. Um, we do that for our badge, and um, we typically take some kind of multidisciplinary approach because we like to use the badge as a platform to learn from. So our CTFs are not really purely hardware-based. You'll have some hardware puzzles, some cryptography, like encoding and encryption puzzles. Um, some stuff is hosted outside the badge. Like we had some wireless puzzles this year where I used a software to find radio to... Um, I'll say broadcast certain things that people had to demodulate and decode and figure out what it says. Um, some open source intelligence gathering. We had some just just like a variety of um, security disciplines in there. That way, it's not like one person's going to do great because they happen to be an expert in one thing, but it's really trying to challenge people into learning something new. Um, and we approach that through using the serial terminal and doing like this text-based adventure game. So you can think of like old school, like multi-user dungeons or Zork, um, Colossal Cave, where you're typing around like, look, what do I see? You know, take this, hack this with that. And eventually it gives you clues onto what the challenge is to where you actually go and try to hack some hardware, hack some software, reverse engineer binary. Um, And so we have that going on with um, a scoreboard and and Zap had to design kind of a creative in- encryption type um, setup better than Zoom. And that allows us to get information off the badge out of band into the cloud so that we can have some cloud-based scoreboard. Yeah, uh, okay. So this that gets something else. This encryption. Go for <laughs> I, it. I love it. Okay, so the way the way the flags work, uh, one of the struggles we always have at DefCon because it's a it's an RF hostile environment. Bluetooth doesn't work well. Wi-Fi is fake Wi-Fi everywhere. Cellular is too expensive, and, and a lot of the same problems. Is so getting data off badges so that we can show a public scoreboard is difficult. So we this year we took a different approach. We said, hey, let's. This is before COVID. Let's find a way so that people, we encourage people to do that data transfer for us. And we're not putting an app on their phone. We're not having them go to any shady websites, although we have a pretty shady website. What's our um, website? you got to call out our <laughs> it's website. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down.com. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> never going to give you up, never going to let you down.com. And it's got flying toasters on it. Yeah, uh, oh, I was going to say, it's beautiful. I want to see Blitz reaction if he hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, no, I'd be, I've been there, and I was on the scoreboard for a little bit. So but the, the idea is, hey, you, you type in nine words, and the reason we pick 
we picked the word. One reason we picked words was somebody could look at the badge on a small screen or on their terminal and not have to type out some random base64 or a hex string or something like that that would be difficult to, to kind of copy into a, a web hey, page. I did that when I was eight years old with the Nintendo. I'm sure you did. I did too. Um, but we, we want to take a little bit. We want to be a little bit different. Um, so we did it. Let's. So we decided let's use words, right? Let's and we settled on five character words. And there's a, there's dictionaries out there you can get that you know have every word you can think of. Uh, and so what ends up generating are these flags. Like uh, I'm reading one off the page because we post all the all the flags at work. You can see it on the page and you just see them get posted. Uh, it'll show you the last ten, and but then it'll just keep adding as people do it in real time. Uh, so one is hubby, match, nodal, durst, dwell, stake, bogey, musky, hunch. Uh, that that sounds a lot like um, my favorite password generator. It's what passwordgenerator.net. And when you generate a password, it will give you a way to remember your password. But if you generate a 16-character random symbols, you get stuff like Hulu, 4, Visa, Yelp, Music, Jack, Park, USA, Korean, Skype. It's like, does that really make it easier to remember what that password was? <laughs> Correct horse battery staple. Exactly. And that's that's actually kind of the same thinking, right? It would be easy to remember, easy to transfer. Well, so. well yes, but what Hiron brought up is that is the password. What I just said is a mnemonic to remember what the password was. But we got layers on layers. Yes. Yeah. So the, but the whole thing is with the with – there's nine five character words uh that's in there that's a data transfer that's going on there uh each word is a symbol that maps to six bits so your trans your is it six bits uh no 12 bits sorry yeah 12 bits there's 4096 words so each one is 12 bits so you're transferring 60 bits uh and this was this took a lot of time to get it just right. There's there's a sweet spot in there. The first word, uh, well, it ends up translating to 48 bits of data. When you map those symbols out, and they're not in alphabetical order, so good luck trying to reverse engineer it. Um, but you map those symbols out, you get a bit pattern. That bit pattern we decrypt, and and which will give you, of course, another set of bits. Uh, there's a CRC hidden in there as well. Uh, so if basically, if we're able to decode all those, now you, so you, you end up with 48 bits of a struct. And in there, there's a command. There's, hey, it's this badge ID, and this is the, the payload that went along with it. Uh, so that's how we're able to do that. But One the of the neat things about it is each flag you see on the page, and this is the reason we're able to show it to everybody, is uniquely tied to the badge that generated it. So I could give Blitz one of my flags I generated, and it will do him no good. So we were able to share these things publicly. Uh, and, and that's one of the cool things that you run in. Well, the, the pitfalls that you run into in CTFs is someone may find an answer, right, and just share it with their buddies. If they do that, we're like, hey, we can just share them. It's like a public key. I don't care if anyone sees it. It does you no good because... Privately, it's only related to your badge hardware. ID. Yeah, the only thing it does is it gives you access to whoever used your key. Right. Mm -hmm. And so actually that that data transfer, I don't have to type it in. I could give the flag to Hyron. He could type it in, and I'll get the credit. There are flags. Um, 
you can generate flags from your badge that will switch the scoreboard into a rickroll or into uh, <laughs> Jimmy Barnes screaming for 10 hours. Yeah. Uh, or was it Man on a Buffalo? I think was the third one it'll do. And if you guy look in the source code, you'll see it. Yeah, Guy on a Buffalo. That is my alarm at 6.30 a.m. <laughs> every day, by the way. Uh, Mrs. Hyron probably hates you. Oh, no. She laughs and then punches me to turn it off every morning. <laughs> you should mix it up with the Buffalo slot machine. Yeah. Oh, like, the Buffalo. Yeah, we should. Re- next time we're in Vegas, we should find machine and get a, a like jackpot or something on it and record the audio from it. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that's the basics of the flags. Uh, one of the reasons why the names of each... Uh, badge is limited to six characters is we can only fit six characters in the payload at the end of the day we tried for eight but we had to make some changes at the end that we had to jump it down to or drop it down to six it's unfortunate but it you know it it worked in the end we can also do things where and and this actually we kind of got lucky in covid we set up a public slack channel and people we encourage people to friend each other and that was, hey, I'll send you a SYN, an S-Y-N, so it's a you know, TCP term, uh, from my badge. And it's, it's one of these you know, nine-word flags. You type it into your badge, it will generate a flag you, that you can punch into the web page. It will each get two points. Uh, and then, likewise, that person that gave, you just sent the SYN to, when they, you know, they ACK it, they could SYN back. And then you can ACK theirs, and then you get two points again. So... Every time you do one of these bi-directional friend sin acts, you each get two points. You end up with four total. Uh, and so that was to encourage some of the social aspects. You see one person on our scoreboard, actually at the top of our scoreboard, he has 152 friends. So he he did that sin act 76 times. Yeah. I, I joke with him. I was like, at least I made, like, between leveraging that encryption and, and working with with the the framework you set out i'm like it's not as frustrating as like a nintendo friend exchange on a ds (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we we tied it into the ctf where um ballpark there's like 20 main challenges 30 easter eggs and then another five bonus challenges and the based on the badges hardware some of them are randomly locked so you can only share the ones you have unlocked with other people. So it encourages people like, why do you want to make friends? When you do the friend exchange, it's sharing, hey, you get to have this unlocked. And it's like a Pokemon game. Yes. So part of it, it it was interesting to watch because you can imagine the first few days, people are just hopping in Slack going, need friend ID, give me friend ID, want to be friends. Um, and eventually people start drinking and bullshitting, which is what we really wanted because you want people to make friends and, and, you know, try to work on these things together. So that way, you know, when they can hopefully meet up in Vegas next year, it's like, hey, that was you. You and I were like bullshitting in Slack and working on the game together. And we were able to unlock those challenges together. And, and I don't know. I, I think that's just kind of a cool social aspect to bring into it. Um from a, from a technical aspect, what made it more difficult, you know, Zap was talking about how we had 48 bits to play with. If you're trying to pack in a friend inside of those 48 bits, eight of those bits gets used up for the friend ID. So that means I have 40 bits to track 
what are the three or four unlocks I'm sharing with that person? And the only way you can do that is through the beauty of bit packing, where it's like bit zero through seven actually represents, you know, is it challenge one, two, 20, 11, and bit eight through 15. And so I'm basically packing those, packing the, the correlations between all those challenges down into 40 bits it comes across in that tiny nine character word stream. And when it gets decrypted, they're um, expanding it and and parsing those out. So I I don't know. I like doing stuff like that, kind of like down at the bit banging or bit packing level. It's, I don't know. That's it's logical uh, bit banging. I guess you would call it. That's a little bit of the uh, game for you guys. <laughs> yeah, I re- it's like what do you enjoy I, on a Wednesday night? <laughs> oh, it's like oh my god, I packed all this information and four unlocks into forty bits. You know, uh, I don't think a lot of people like really focus on or like to think about um, how do I get efficiency out of forty bits right now. But it's fun. It's a fun challenge. Out of curiosity, has anyone unlocked everything? Has any? Has, are you aware of anyone who's done all of it? Um, funny story. Uh, no, I, so no, I don't think anyone's done all of it because there's some challenges they can't do without us. And yeah. I, we, we just <laughs> isn't that cheating? No, it's a way for us to detect cheaters. Yeah. Uh, so the interesting story there. So to avoid having to reflash badges, which we ended up having to do, but we intentionally put flags in the badges that we weren't sure we would end up needing. Uh, and they were just, you know, miscellaneous one through nine or something like that. And it was just to reserve it. So we wouldn't have to add code later. They're already pre-programmed. What we figured out was we did have to release firmware update and people went in and they reverse engineered it. They found the flags uh, and they started punching them into their badge and putting them into the website. And they're getting all these points that they didn't earn. Uh, so we decided, okay, fine you're using flags that you know you shouldn't have earned yeah and we no, started I'll, making them worth negative a thousand points but sidebar <laughs> you know it, it is a hacker ctf so in a it way is. we are recognizing the fact that you're a hacker someone released their firmware a, as a bigger you know proof of concept or example like hardware and iot is not safe and when vendors put their firmware on the website um you're opening the gates. I know some people rely on security through obscurity, but you release your firmware, anyone can reverse engineer it and figure out what the heck's going on and and exploit IoT devices. So by having those landmines, and to give you a rough idea, like a good score would be 1,600 to 1,800 points. Um, These landmines dock 1,000 points per landmine. Basically, if you hit one, you're dead. Yeah, well, and some people started going through like, oh, I'm just going to enter all these flags. And someone went from second or third place down to the bottom with like negative 1600. <laughs> and, and I won't go further into the details, but they you think figured, they would have stopped that to the first one. Yeah, but they figured out how to come back. And, and I think from a discovery and hacker CTF point of view, like that's what we're all about. I'm like, there's many different paths to enjoy this and learn from this. And if and if trying to rack up points is your thing and you hit some pitfalls in reverse engineering, hopefully you learned something from that and and others did too. And now I see people in Slack and they're like, 
you could reverse engineer the firmware, but my God, it's going to screw your score if you do that. And I don't know, let's figure out how it actually works. I'm like, good. That's what you should do if you reverse engineer something. Figure out how it works. Yeah, <laughs> now, if you had the list a couple times, now what would be the chance if you if you got the list of the flags and you punch something in and it was let's say it was valid, it could be for someone else's badge too, correct? Uh, uh, no. So there are there are codes that we that are hidden places. You have to get them by solving challenges and whatnot. They're usually like six, five, six character codes. Uh, lowercase, uppercase numbers, those sorts of things. Some are if maybe you, on Twitter. Some are on Twitter. Some are buried on GitHub, different places like that. Uh, if you find one, legitimately or, or otherwise, you can type that into an app that's on the badge called the, the Decoder app. And if it's valid, it will produce a flag uh, that says, hey, you've gotten that yeah. code. So if it was a Twitter one, there are a couple of released on Twitter. It's like, hey, you got the Twitter one flag, you got the Twitter two flag. Here's the the nine symbol uh, flag that you need to go claim your points. Yeah, and and not only do we have like those negative landmine flags, um, there are regular like Easter egg flags, like Zap was talking about, that are just worth like ten points that we didn't release. So people may have figured out, oh, what's positive and negative, and they go and enter the flag, but it's like, guess what? We never tweeted that out or released it. So if you enter that flag, I know you reverse the firmware because that's the only way you could have gotten it. You go into the other category. <laughs> okay, so just having a complete non-understanding of the difficulties behind this, what is the what is the chance of reverse engineering the flag itself and just being able to hammer yourself points? Um, it... it... Gosh, I want to give that away. It's it's highly unlikely, right? They're, it's highly unlikely also because there's, I'll say, client-side on the badge and there's server-side validation as well. So even if someone's like, oh, ho, I, I, I figured this out, I'm going to punch in, I get a million points, um, we still control the server and that would be an invalid point value coming through. So it just get dropped on the floor. Watch, people are going to listen to this and get spun up and take our website down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need to check, but uh, I think our cloud hosting cost this year was like fourteen cents. Ooh, so. we need to move and find someone new. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to afford that. All those flying toasters are expensive. Yeah. They are. <laughs> All the people that uh, some people told me, oh, I know some folks like leave their tabs open. They're like, your page has been open for a week straight and it's running slow. I'm like, I don't know. Fucking hit refresh. I, <laughs> we didn't test that thing for memory leaks. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, that's on you. Stop running Chrome. <laughs> yeah. Stop running Chrome. Like it's using 300 megs of RAM. I'm like, I don't know. Open up a new tab. Close the old one. Don't complain. I like I deal with 40 bits like. I don't care. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, it looks like some people have submitted some more flags while we've been talking here. Voice debut, guilt shots, vital rinse, refer, mower pair. We can use your flag site as a uh, as a random password generator. There you go. <laughs> oh, the most There's not a lot of passwords. entropy there. My A lot of my flags on my prototype 
the first two words half the time were amigo frogs. <laughs> I love those. You know, since we're on the topic of 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 software and firmware, um, one of the really cool like hardware mods I saw to the badge. And, and when you think about it, it's it's not too difficult of a feat to pull off, but it's still pretty impressive. And I'm happy that someone did this. Um, I'm like stalling because I'm trying to look up their name right now. But basically, because you're able to play through serial, um, I'm trying to give you a conceptual conceptualization of how the CTF starts. And it kind of looks like an overview map. If you've ever played like a game called ZZT where it's like the little ASCII happy face and you're walking around in a world kind of reminds you of like Zelda, like original legend of Zelda. Um, it forces you to grind. Like you don't know where any challenges or items are. So you have to move one space type, look, move another space type, look, hopefully you find something. Uh, they use some clever Python scripts to take a dance dance revolution pad and connect it to their computer and map the serial commands <laughs> of WASND and and sending look over serial. So they're like hitting the DDR pad with like look mapped in the corners, like walking around. And I'm like, that's just freaking cool. Like so here, here's somebody who spent five hours making a tool to save himself one hour of grinding on the badge. That's what good engineers do. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> You know, you know, I have to admit, the day I got the badge, I pulled it out, and I fired it up. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I saw that map, and I start walking around the map, and I'm like, oh, geez, really? Like, <laughs> this is what they're going to have me do? It's, uh, yeah, it's a maze. I wish I, I had time to randomly generate the maze, but... Um, yeah, you have to go wander around a maze and grind and find everything first. And I grind is the right word for sure, because like there's zero handholding. There's zero anything other than like you just know you have to move a space and then attempt to do something every space. Yep. So if you make it past the grind, then you f find all the challenges and then you can focus on solving the challenges. Um, yeah. I like to stress people out. I even <laughs> I, I took the effort to make sure that the edges of the map, because like, you know, you hit the edge of the map and it pans up kind of like you, you clip the edge of the screen. I made sure to put um, maze borders on the edge of the map. So you're like, why the hell can't I go up? And you're like, OK, hit left, try up. OK, I can't hit left, try up. And eventually you find a <laughs> hole because there's like, you know, it was funny because just earlier in this podcast, I was playing the maze <laughs> and, and it, it was it was move one step, try move one step, try it was. It's, yeah, that was fun. I we spend nine months figuring out how we control people for a couple weeks and just frustrate <laughs> them. And <laughs> hell, I was even surprised that uh, half of those challenges we call them like lulls quizzes. Um, we just pick sensitive topics of debate, like pineapple on pizza, red team versus blue team, Linux versus Windows versus OS X, Emacs and, versus Vim. Yeah, I, I mean, because Vim's the right answer, right? <laughs> but we were giving people five points if it gets if they get it right negative 10 points if they get it wrong and people are just hopping in slack like what the hell you're wrong rah, 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 rah. and i'm like i don't care well it's our game we're right you're wrong 
it's just fun trolling people. I think it makes it wonderful. I do have one thing to say about the badge. Mm, the silk screen shiny. is incorrect. There isn't huh? much. So on it says oh, yeah. it says I like in and out on it. <laughs> which is incorrect. It's, it's forever forever yeah. inscribed on hundreds of badges that people are going to cherish yeah. for decades. Yes. That Parker likes in and out more than Whataburger. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, I did not catch that in my design review. It also it also <laughs> says that Macrofab rocks. So See, that one I let through. God, so many mistakes on one badge. <laughs> <laughs> we make it a point to print very heartfelt messages on the PCB so that people at the Fab could see it. <laughs> yeah, people actually really enjoy at the Fab building these things because uh, they uh, all the little tips and tricks. The, the, the thing is, you put crab foam, so no one knew who that was <laughs> at the Fab. But um, every time I send boards into the fab, I embed messages in copper on the inner layers of the board, just so whoever is the one person who does design review, they might catch what I have to say in there. Actually, one year I put things underneath the screens because uh, we had met uh, Liz and, and some of the other folks that actually worked on the. We would we knew would end up working on the final product underneath the screens and such. Like, hey, thanks, you know, you're awesome. All the like you know specific names of people we had met uh but yeah that's a lot of fun to do this year is easy because it's all enclosed in an acrylic case so we had plenty of room to play with and, and hide little easter eggs there's a lot there's a lot of fun that can be had in just the pcb design um last summer was it? It was a year ago. Yeah, it was a year ago. Parker came up to Colorado and hung out, and we discussed a game that we've been talking about making for a long time, and a handful of like fun hardware hacks that reference the game itself that are all embedded somehow in the PCB, and it's just like there's there's a lot of cool things you can do that involve the hardware itself, referencing the software. I love it on our. Um on our Trevor, our little Trevor cockroach badge that we've done a couple years now, he's had a thermistor on his leg. So you had to put his leg in ice water to cool him off. And the number <laughs> of people that freaked out putting a PCB in water, <laughs> in ice water, they just yeah, did not want to do it. You, you wouldn't think that would be a problem. Like after a while, you're like, yeah, you can dip that in water. And they're like, it's going to, I'm like, what, you think it's going to blow up? Like, it's fine. Just <laughs> it has a double A on it. You're fine. Yeah, not only that, it was a, a, a CR twenty thirty two. I'm like, oh, it was just a coin cell yeah, on that I'm one. Like, okay, I yeah, that. yeah, you're fine. <laughs> but yeah, people dunk the whole thing in the piece in the water. You're fine. <laughs> but you'd find like circles of people like I don't know if if are, are you willing to sacrifice yours? And I'm like, just, you could pour water on it and then wash it off with alcohol. It's fine. <laughs> There's that like. F- imagination that like sparks are going to fly everywhere and smoke comes up and that's what movies have trained people for decades though yeah (laughs) for all the firmware you guys are talking about you you're sure you're starting to sound like hardware guys now just put some alcohol in it you'll be fine (laughs) sounds like human beings (laughs) (laughs) actually that's also that's also firmware development just put some alcohol in them they'll be fine you know related from working on hardware, I was so prepared for this COVID lockdown 
because like you're going to need masks and protective wear and gloves and you're going to need like high percentage isopropyl and alcohol. And I'm like, you mean what I use to clean off all the stuff that I solder and work in my bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) Ready to go. Too bad engineers are uh, introverts and we're just going to stay at home anyway. Mm -hmm. What, what pandemic? (laughs) Did anyone got anyone else? to uh, talk about? Hmm, I'd probably say the, the last one, uh, we did have to release a patch. Uh, one of the nice yeah, you mentioned came, that earlier. Yeah, we found some... One of the symbols didn't... Pat, we, we did manual scrubs of the word list several times. We ran it through tools. It, it missed a pretty egregious word. Uh, and so we decided, hey, we, we know we're going to... We have to release a patch. That means putting unencrypted firmware out into the real world where hackers are going to do things with it. And they did, but I think it was important just to, to get it out there, get it get it fixed. Uh, it was a really easy fix. Um, the cool thing, though, was using STM32, it has its own bootloader baked into the ROM. And so, was, and we had already gotten all the, the um, gosh, what is it? The I forget the two pins you have to toggle while you reset. But we'd actually had that all worked out, actually running from software. So it was a simple command you could type into our terminal. It would go into DFU mode, pop up as a device in DFU util, and things just worked. Uh, and we are able to push the patch out, excuse me, uh, relatively easily that way. Uh, a lot of people were able to, to patch it. Um, if that word were to show up in a flag because you had an older ver- version of the firmware, the scoreboard would reject it. Uh, it was just our way of getting out in front of a problem as quickly as we could. So, you, you know, related to that patch, something that we experienced that is like hardware, firmware, software related, which I don't use um, a Mac. Like I don't have OS X. None of us do. We all run Linux, couple Windows boxes. Um, I was not aware of some people are probably going to attack me on this. The lack of support Apple has for hardware outside their ecosystem. Um, because I had a lot of people telling me, I can't... What's hardware outside the Apple ecosystem? I don't even know what that is. Well, at first people were telling me... Is that an iPod? They're like, I can't mount this on (laughs) Serial. And I'm like, I mean, under the hood, you know, OS X is a version of Linux. I'm like, it should work. And it wasn't working. And they're like, we can't run DFU util. And we finally got them running a virtual machine. And I start doing my own research and I start finding hundreds and hundreds of like angry posts about my Arduino Uno won't work on OS X Catalina. And when they went to 64-bit OS X, they killed all 32-bit and lower driver support unless it natively comes with their stuff. And I just could not believe, like, you know, let's say you're getting into hardware and you want to, like, prototype on an Arduino, you know, all the way up to, like, hey, we have a custom badge with an STM32. If, if you don't have something with drivers that are 64-bit and signed and officially in their ecosystem, it doesn't even work on like a modern version of OS X without going under the hood and gutting it and installing third-party sources and stuff. And so, long story wait, short, wait, you're telling me that 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 Apple completely dropped support for tons of their people? What? <laughs> that, that never happened. <laughs> nah, yeah. nah, Blitz, you got it wrong. You just had to buy an Arduino. Oh. oh, yeah, for a couple more thousand dollars. <laughs> the newest Duino. So what do you really think? Though. And I get it from a business decision like, 
hey, are we going to support people that buy open source that don't buy and spend money on nothing on free open source stuff? But uh, I guess at the at the higher layers where people are just programming website stuff and whatnot, they don't really care. But um, I was just blown away that something as simple as like an Arduino Uno or even like an STM32 popping on serial, like you could not get it working on OSX Catalina without launching a virtual machine of like Ubuntu and piping it through to the VM to work. So Blitz... I did look up. There is an Arduino, <laughs> and it's made by <laughs> of, of course it's there made is. by G Tech. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Does it does it have a white PCB? Unfortunately, no. It does not. Oh have. come on! But it's uh, <laughs> and it's uh, the brand is BJ E Power. Ooh. So I don't know. <laughs> I w- I wanted to bring that up because I don't know how like. It's not very often. I don't run into people who like write embedded, you know, develop embedded systems on a Mac, but it's usually Linux or Windows that people use to to work on embedded systems. And now that I ran across this and I'm like, how deep is that in the community? Like I, I don't normally, because you don't see like Keel or Atmel type IDEs or VS code running in there, but, um, my VS code runs in OSX, but yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised. I'm like, wow. Um, if you want to get into hardware or digital systems, embedded systems, uh, OSX may not be the, the platform or path you take. Go with Linux or Windows. I never thought I'd hear myself saying go with Windows. <laughs> I think with that dead air, I think we've come to the end of this podcast. I know. <laughs> it kind of sounds like I it. know. <laughs> I'll start talking about the Star Wars Christmas special. <laughs> Again. <laughs> so yeah we'll, we'll have to when does that come out uh Hyron? i'm guessing around christmas if it does that is what we <laughs> go figure. That is what we get to oh, talk about this year excuse me holiday holiday special <laughs> the holiday season uh, wait hang on before we go i'm looking this up just okay. to see when uh when this might actually come out uh if it is this holiday season that is what this year's because we don't have a real star wars movie to talk about you know, maybe oh, it's maybe we, we watch it and legit. then uh, it's also have the episode Boing, directly after, and just uh, <laughs> or maybe we watch it live. That'd even be fun. Ooh, oh, watch it, it really? and talk about it like MST3K. <laughs> that would be so great. <laughs> um, I'm down. If I'm not banned, that would be fun. Yeah, we have to make that work. Did, did you find? If I'm not banned, I like. That. Did you Did you find the link on the Star Wars website? They have all the Lego guys and girls. We'll have to do that. That will have to be this year's Star Wars podcast. Is we'll have to be like at the gong plus play on Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, wait. Oh, November seventeenth. Oh yeah, we'll be out for a whole year. Uh, not whole year, whole month before we get to do our episode. Oh, perfect. We can watch it like eight times. Scrub. I'm going to be ten times. And Netflix is going to suck in a year. They're not recording anything. Just think about that. Why, Netflix isn't recording anything? Well, no, they're, so they're not going to be making any movies or any shows. Or they haven't. Yeah, like so right now, Star everything Wars you're watching on TV and streaming, it, that's all their past six months. We're going to hit this dry spell like 2008 when they went on the writer's strike. and Lego Star Wars Christmas special for the win. Yeah. <laughs> for the next Just year. On, on infinite repeat. <laughs> 
I'm just going to watch Battlestar Galactica again and I'll deal with that. All right, let's wrap this thing up. See, I made a tangent happen. You're like, we're going to close out the show. I'm like, Christmas special. (laughs) Holiday special. Well, with that, would you guys like to uh, sign us out? Oh, hold on. Where can people find y'all? And nxor.com and a-n-d-n-x-o-r on Twitter. So we, we, we're active on Twitter quite a bit, a lot more than we update our website. And then what was your flag website one more time, just in case people want to go check it oh, out? Oh, yeah, our, our scoreboard, never going to give you up, never going to let you down dot com. It really rolls off the tongue. I have tongue. no idea where that's from. No. No. Some no ancient clue. meme from back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, kids just won't understand it these days. All right, so you want me to close it out? Close it out. All right. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your guests, Zap. And Hyron. And, and we, were we were your host, Mark Dillman. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve Craig. And Blitz. Later, everyone. Later. Take it easy. <laughs>